Book Five, Chapter One, Part Two of the History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Guero. The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two, by Henry Charles Lee. Book Five resources chapter one part two confiscation in the struggle made by the kingdoms of aragon against the oppression of the inquisition the iniquities of confiscation were prominent they were illustrated in the cortes of monzon in fifteen twelve by a special grievance which illustrates the working of the system the local government had borrowed money and secured it by a censo or obligation given to maestro miro and juan bertran who were condemned for heresy and the censo was demanded the authorities showed that the censo had been paid off and the debt cancelled twenty-nine years before but the receiver insisted on their paying it again because the heretical acts of miro and bertran were anterior and their release of the censo was therefore invalid they petitioned ferdinand for relief but he contented himself with ordering that they should not be unduly oppressed, which left the matter open. Still, one of the concessions granted in 1512 was that prescription of time should be reduced to thirty years. This was confirmed in Mercader's instructions of 1514, and when, in 1515, the Catalans complained of its inobservance, Ferdinand ordered it to be maintained. Leo X went even further in his bull of 1516, confirming the Concordia of 1512, and, in that of 1520, this was defined as protecting from confiscation all property acquired in good faith from those not publicly noted for heresy, even though they should subsequently be condemned, and the prescription of thirty years had not expired. This was declared applicable to all pending cases, and, to render it more emphatic, Charles V made a formal grant of all such property to the holders. We have seen, however, how completely the Inquisition ignored this settlement, denying its authority and even its existence. Castile was no more successful, for when the Cortes of 1534 petitioned that possession for three years in the hands of Catholics should confer immunity from confiscation, and that dowries of Catholic wives should be exempt, Charles flatly refused both requests. Finally the question settled itself in the canonical prescription of forty years undisturbed possession by Orthodox Catholics, for this is what Simancas informs us was the rule. The old instructions requiring longer possession, he says, had been abrogated, and although some authorities argued that five years sufficed, or at most twenty, these were not recognized by the tribunals. How business adjusted itself to the risks attending all transactions with new Christians, we can only conjecture. In one important respect, the Inquisition mitigated the iniquitous harshness of the older institution by recognizing the claims of the creditors of the condemned heretic. This, however, was not the case at first, and it would not be easy to exaggerate the general confusion and distress when it came to be understood that confiscation included the debits as well as the credits of the victims. The early extensive arrests were followed by the wholesale flight of those who felt themselves under suspicion. Flight was regarded as confession, and the fugitives were condemned in absentia 
as soon as the necessary formalities could be dispatched. The losses of the consequent confiscation of debits fell not only on individuals connected with their extensive transactions, but on the public bodies and ecclesiastical establishments, the collection of whose revenues was largely in their hands. The conditions thus created are impressively reflected in the records of Jerez de la Frontera, where the municipal taxes were largely farmed to conversos, who had fled. The public funds had been in their hands, and they were naturally in debt to the town as well as to churches and private persons. It would appear that all these obligations were calmly ignored by the Inquisition, and the municipality appealed to the sovereigns who replied, December 6, 1481, that the matter had been referred to the licenciado Ferran Janes de Lobon, the very commissioner who, for about a year, had been busy in enforcing the collections of the confiscations. This boded ill for relief. The documents do not reveal the outcome, but as all the efforts of the authorities only brought them in contact with the officials engaged in gathering the spoils, it is evident that the sovereigns did not propose to abandon their rights. We have seen that the instructions of 1484-5, to when recognizing the validity of transactions anterior to 1479, asserted absolutely the right of the fisc to refuse payment of debts, and made no concessions as to those contracted subsequently to that period. At the same time, a clause concerning claims made by nobles who had received fugitives in their lands shows that the Inquisition felt the matter to be within its discretion. The earliest positive admission that I have met of an obligation to pay debts due by a confiscated estate is an order by Ferdinand, May 12, 1486, to Alfonso de Mesa, receiver at Teruel, that wages due in good faith by heretics to their Moorish servants are to be paid, but this may perhaps be attributable to the special preference allowed to servants' wages by the laws of Aragon. Various contradictory decisions illustrate the uncertainty hanging over the matter at this time, and it is clearly manifested by two letters of Ferdinand, evidently drawn up for him by his unscrupulous secretary Calcena. The first of these, March 6, 1498, relates to the Castillo de Calaña, which Calcena had obtained from the confiscated estate of Johann Benete, and against which certain parties held censos, ground rents, and other claims the king is made to order the receiver to suspend action, because the debts had been contracted after Benete had committed acts of heresy. The other letter, March 11, 1498, reiterates an order of August 29, 1497, to a receiver to pay out of the sequestrated property of Antonicones a hundred ducats, which Calcena had lent him, and to pay him before any other creditors. By this time, however, the claims of creditors were beginning to be officially recognized. The instructions of 1498 give detailed orders as to surrendering property belonging to others, and promptly paying debts clearly due out of sequestrated estates, and, when confiscation was pronounced, a proclamation was to be made to all claimants to present their claims within a designated time which in 1499 was fixed at thirty days, while no property was to be sold until the claims against it had been determined. Yet in spite of this, the rights of creditors were admitted with difficulty by the receivers, and numerous instances occur in which they were obliged to appeal to Ferdinand, 
As late as 1515, Margarita D'Artes, wife of Dr. Francisco D'Artes, assessor of the Valencia Tribunal, complained that in 1499 she had bought a censo, secured on a house of Aldonza Cocarredes. Aldonza had now been relaxed, and Aliaga, the receiver, refused to recognize the censo, because it had been created after she had committed heresy. Ferdinand admitted the validity of this argument, and said that, in the rigor of justice, she had lost her claim, but in view of the fact that her husband had been in the service of the Inquisition since its foundation, he ordered it paid as a favor. An examination of the records of the Valencia Court of Confiscations, in 1531 and 1532, evinces on the whole an evident desire to administer the law rigidly, whether in favor of or against the fisc. Among the claimants were a number of serving women for wages, which were always allowed, although the court exercised somewhat arbitrary discretion in cutting down the amounts. Gradually the honest policy prevailed, and in 1543 the Suprema instructed the tribunals that the first thing to be paid were the debts that were properly proved, a rule which apparently was difficult to enforce, for the order had to be repeated in 1546 and again in 1547. Yet it was no easy matter for creditors to obtain payment against the resistance offered by receivers and their advocates. In 1565, after Fierre and Gilles de Bonville were burnt for Protestantism in Toledo, the fiscal reported to the inquisitors that numerous creditors had come forward whose claims were pending before the juez de los bienes, wherefore he asked for a certificate as to the date of the culprit's heresies, in order to use it before the court. The inquisitors duly certified that the date was about 1550, the object being to plead the obsolete canonical rule that subsequent obligations were invalid that chicanery of all kinds was employed to exhaust the patience of creditors and accumulate costs is plainly admitted in the memorial of sixteen twenty three to the suprema which states that in the suits of creditors there is much that brings discredit on the inquisition for confiscations are managed solely for the benefit of those who administer them the appointees of the juez de los bienes and ordinarily his kinsmen or friends for whose advantage the suits are prolonged until they become immortal abuses such as these were inevitable in a system which confined everything within the circle of the inquisition permitting no outside interference or supervision while dealing so tenderly with official malfeasance it would be difficult to overestimate the widespread damage resulting when the accused were merchants with extensive and complicated transactions, as in the immense confiscations in Mexico and Peru from 1630 to 1650, and those of Mallorca in 1678, when funds and merchandise of correspondence were tied up for an indefinite time to the destruction of their credit. The hazards to which business was thus exposed was a factor and by no means the least important in the decay of spanish commerce for no one could foresee at what moment the blow might fall sequestration accompanied arrest and in sixteen thirty five it was ordered that during the pending of a trial no payments or delivery of property should be made to creditors no matter what evidence they presented without awaiting the decision of the suprema the only exception being claims of the king which were to be paid without delay in seventeen twenty one this prohibition to pay debts was made absolute excepting a few trivial matters such as servants wages and house rent 
that foreigners dealing with spain had ample cause to dread the decisions of the juez de los bienes is shown by a remarkable clause in the english treaty of sixteen sixty five which provided that in case of sequestration of property by any tribunal of either nation the effects or debts belonging to a subject of the other should not suffer confiscation but should be restored to the owner on the whole however the Spanish Inquisition is entitled to the credit of mitigating, in favor of creditors, the abhorrent harshness of the inquisitorial law of confiscation, although in practice its officials were guilty of minimizing, as far as they could, the benefits of this moderation. In the matter of dowries there was also a partial mitigation of the old severity. The dowry was forfeited by the wife's heresy, but not by that of the husband, and in the latter case it descended to her children there was one provision however which worked infinite hardship for if the parents of the wife had been guilty of heresy at the time of her marriage it was forfeited on the ground that all their property then belonged to the fisc and they had no power of alienation the cases are numerous in which the parties after prolonged married life thus suddenly found themselves despoiled by the condemnation of parents who had enjoyed the reputation of faithful christians and in the intermarriages so frequent in the earlier period the blow thus often fell upon old christians we hear of these cases through despairing appeals to ferdinand for mercy appeals to which he not infrequently responded by abandoning his claims or surrendering a part a typical case illustrative of many others is that of juan quirat a belche whose petition to the king in fifteen thirteen represents that twenty-five years before he had married violante propinan receiving ten thousand sueldos as her dowry from her parents luis and blanca eight years ago they were condemned and now the receiver claims the dowry he is a poor escudero or squire and the enforcement of the claim would send him with his wife and children to the hospital in view of all which ferdinand charitably waived his right more peculiar was the case of juan castellon of majorca who when trading in tunis was enslaved by a brother of barbarossa after forty-two months of captivity he was ransomed for four hundred ducats and returned home in fifteen twenty to find that his wife's mother isabel luna had been condemned and the dowry received from her was claimed by the receiver he petitioned cardinal adrian the matter was referred to charles v who humanely ordered that if his story was true and he was unable to pay the confiscation should be remitted the hardship was sometimes aggravated by an ostentatious custom of inserting in the marriage contract a larger sum than was actually paid. Thus, in 1531, the magnifico Diego de Montemayor, baile of the Grau of Valencia, swore that he received only 3,000 sueldos of the 6,000 specified in his marriage contract with Beatriz Scrivana in 1510, and that the larger sum had been inserted honoris causa. The dowries of nuns were subject to the same merciless absorption. In 1510, the convent of Santa Ines of Cordova appealed to Ferdinand, stating that, some twenty years previous, Pedro Sigero had placed his niece there as a nun, giving as her dowry certain houses which it had peacefully enjoyed until her grandfather had recently been condemned for heresy, and the property was seized as part of his confiscated estate. This was strictly legal, 
and it was a pure act of grace when the king ordered the houses to be released. Still, the dowry of an orthodox wife was exempt from the confiscation of a heretic husband's estate, but it was imperiled by the possibility that the estate might be exhausted in the maintenance of the husband in prison during a prolonged trial, and by the sacrifice of values in the realization of assets at auction, which was imperative. In the proceedings of the Juzgado de Bienes of Valencia in 1531, there are numerous cases which show that this claim of the wife was fully recognized and a fair adjudication made in the complicated questions which frequently arose. Correlative to this was the liability of the husband to pay the fisc the dowry of a wife condemned or reconciled for heresy. How pitilessly in time this was exacted is manifested in 1549 by a petitioned Valdés from Don Pedro Gascón, who represents himself as an Hidalgo, whose ancestors had served the king faithfully. The judge of confiscations at Cuenca had condemned him in a hundred and fifty ducats for the dowry of his wife, and the receiver had cast him in prison to enforce payment. While there he had sold a large part of his property, and had paid fifty ducats, but the rest of his estate would not produce the remaining hundred. Ferdinand would have forgiven him the balance, but Valdés only looked to obtaining assurance of ultimate payment, when he empowered the receiver to grant him six years' time on his furnishing good security. Another feature, which frequently complicated these settlements, was the question of the conquests, the ganancias or cres, the gains made during married life, in which both spouses had an equal share. The laws of Toro, in 1505, provide that neither husband nor wife could forfeit claim to half the ganancias for the crime of the other, even if the crime were heresy, and the ganancia is defined to be the whole increase during wedlock until the decree of confiscation, no matter when the crime was committed, a rule which remained in force. The complexity introduced by these various interests in the settlement of confiscations is illustrated in the case of Diego Lopez, a merchant of Zamora, reconciled in the Auto de Fe of Valladolid, in June 1520. He kept no books, and the number of debits and credits rendered his affairs exceedingly complicated. Moreover, the paternal estate had never been divided between him and his brothers, while his wife put in claims for her dowry and share of the ganancias. In this perplexity, the only solution was a compromise, which was reached by the wife and brothers, agreeing to pay 450,000 maravedis in installments, giving adequate security. The Valencia Court of Confiscations, however, invented a method of evading the wifely claim to the accretions, for, in 1532, when Ángela Pérez, widow of Luis Gilabert, burnt for heresy, demanded her dowry of three thousand sueldos, and the cres, the court ordered the receiver to pay the dowry, but refused the cres, on the ground that the date of his committing heresy showed that he could not lawfully make any gains. The exemption from confiscation of those who came in under the Edicts of Grace, confessed and were reconciled, gave rise to an impressive illustration of the passionate greed aroused among all classes by the legalized spoliation of the new Christians and the corollary that they had no rights. Prelates and chapters of churches, abbots and priors of convents, 
rectors of hospitals and pious institutions, and other ecclesiastics and laymen, who had mortgaged their properties to the heretics, or had sold ground-rents to them, or otherwise hypothecated them, repudiated their engagements, and would render no satisfaction, whereby we are told, many were deterred from seeking reconciliation. A more practical objection was that those who were thus despoiled were hindered in paying the heavy fines laid upon them by the inquisitors. Ferdinand and Isabella, therefore, applied to Innocent the Eighth for a remedy which he furnished in 1486 by a brief in which, after reciting the above, he granted to those thus reconciled the mortgages and censos and other liens which they held on properties, forbidding the debtors from claiming release and pronouncing invalid any judgments which they might obtain. While thus the Spanish Inquisition, in some respects, dealt more liberally than its medieval predecessor with the unfortunates subjected to its operations, it was ruthlessly systematic in its absorption of everything that was not covered by the above exceptions. It was in vain that, in 1486, Innocent the Eighth, probably induced by the gold of the conversos, represented to the sovereigns that, as the confiscations had been conceded to them, it would stimulate the penitents to be firm in the faith if their property was restored to those who were reconciled. It was much more profitable for greed to disguise itself as zeal for religion, as when in 1533, at the Cortes of Monzon, Valencia petitioned that an exemption from confiscation granted to the forcibly converted moriscos should be extended to their children, and the Suprema replied that confiscation was the penalty most dreaded, and that which most deterred from heresy, as for relying on the terror of burning as a preventive, the fact was that the church received to reconciliation all who repented, and if they were not punished with confiscation, they would enjoy immunity. In the same spirit, Bishop Simancas argued that it was for the public benefit that the children of heretics should be beggared, and therefore the old laws which allowed Catholic children to inherit had justly been abrogated. This heartless remark indicates that, by the middle of the sixteenth century, there was no compassion for the helpless offspring, but at first there was some responsibility felt for them, possibly through a reminiscence of the old laws. The instructions of 1484 provide that, when the children of those condemned to the stake or to perpetual prison are under age and unmarried, they were to be given to respectable Catholics or to religious, to be brought up in the faith, and a record of such cases was to be kept, for it was the intention of the sovereigns that if they proved to be good Christians, they should have alms, especially the girls, to enable them to marry or to enter religion. There is no trace of any systematic attempt to carry out this humane provision, but when cases of special hardship were called to Ferdinand's attention, he occasionally was moved to make liberal concessions. When, however, in 1486, the inquisitors of Zaragoza asked for authority to grant relief to some poor culprits, not very guilty, who were encumbered with daughters likely to be forced to evil courses, the canny monarch evidently distrusted this sudden access of benevolence, and, while approving the kindliness of the suggestion, he said that he was better acquainted than they with the people of Saragossa, and less likely to be deceived, so they could send him the names of the parties, their properties, and the number of their daughters, when he would determine what should be done. 
it was evidently a question only of kindly impulses there was no obligation moral or legal and as the wants of the holy office grew more urgent in the shrinkage of the stream of confiscations inquisitors like simancas argued that the service of god required the sacrifice of the innocents in practice everything on which the officials could lay their hands under any pretext was swept remorselessly into the fisc even the bedding and clothes of those led out to execution at the autos de fe were seized as appears from occasional donations of them to officials when in fourteen ninety five charles the eighth occupied naples it became a place of refuge for fugitives from spain but the pious skippers of the vessels carrying them not infrequently served god by stripping their defenceless passengers and carrying home the spoils this was an invasion of the rights of the crown which vindicated itself by sending to biscay and guipuzcoa anton sanchez de aguirre to search for the jewels and merchandise thus taken from heretics and sell them for the benefit of the fisc in fifteen thirteen when jaime de marrana scrivener of the court of segorbe was condemned all his subordinates were called upon to surrender the fees which they had received during his term of office a dying man could not make even a pious bequest if his natural heir was a heretic for when in fifteen fourteen nicolas de medina a merchant of seville returning from france died at bayonne in the hôpital du saint esprit and bequeathed to it a bill of exchange for a hundred and twenty-six ducats the procurator of the hospital came to seville to collect it vijasis the receiver there promptly sequestrated it on the ground that medina's heir rodrigo de cordoba had been condemned for heresy and although the suprema finally released it this was done as an act of charity to the hospital the same rule applied when there was heresy in the ascendance juan francisco vitalis a native of majorca was settled in rome as a merchant he desired to trade with spain but feared to do so for his father and grandfather had been condemned for heresy and any merchandise or funds that he might send would be liable to confiscation as constructively derived from them he therefore in fifteen eleven applied for a safe conduct for his goods which ferdinand issued exempting them from seizure by the inquisition it was good however only during the royal pleasure and for six months after its withdrawal should be notified to vitalis or be publicly proclaimed in valencia heresy shed around it an infection which contaminated everything with which it came in contact not only was a ship carrying heretics forfeited but also its cargo in fifteen o one vicencio de landera a merchant of gaeta shipped some cotton by a biscayan vessel for alicante on her arrival the receiver seized the cargo because she carried two persons condemned by the inquisition but the bishop of gaeta head chaplain to ferdinand's sister the queen of naples brought influence to bear and the king ordered landera to be paid the proceeds of his cotton apparently the other owners of the cargo had no redress ferdinand was more obdurate in fifteen eleven when a ship and its cargo were condemned in seville for carrying heretics this included a quantity of pepper belonging to a portuguese merchant named juan francisco king manuel interposed to protect his subject 
when Ferdinand replied that he had ordered justice done, but that the Inquisition had represented that Francisco had bought the pepper from King Manuel, and had paid for it with bills of exchange drawn by heretics, and thus with heretic money, which was held to forfeit the pepper. This policy was not merely transient. In 1634 the Inquisition seized the goods and credits of Portuguese merchants, residents of Holland, Hamburg, and France, trading with Spain. Agents had been sent abroad to secure evidence of their Judaism. They naturally sought to defend their property and presented certificates of their orthodoxy. The affair dragged on, and, in 1636, Dr. Juan de Goza presented an elaborate opinion in justification of this, proving that the property must be confiscated, although the owners were not Spaniards, nor domiciled in Spain, nor had committed heresy in Spain. His argument was based on the principle of the canon law that the heretic had no rights, and that any Catholic could seize and despoil him. Heresy is a crime all-pervading, and not limited to the spot where it is committed, for it is an injury to the whole Christian republic. No evidence was required, for it was notorious that the Portuguese absented themselves in order to indulge their heretical proclivities, and that they frequented the synagogues in Amsterdam and elsewhere. The Inquisition was to hold the property, and for greater justification, to summon by edict the owners to appear and defend it within a fixed term, or it could appoint defenders to act for them but in no case was it to raise the sequestration or surrender the property. It is superfluous to point out the effect of all this on Spanish commerce. As regards property alienated subsequently to the commission of heresy, the only limitation on its confiscation is found in the provision prohibiting interference with transactions anterior to 1479. All later ones were subject to forfeiture without compensation to the purchaser, unless, indeed, he had made improvements, the value of which was reimbursed to him. The frequency of these cases, and the hardship to which they exposed innocent third parties, are amply illustrated by the numerous appeals to Ferdinand for relief, which, be it said to his credit, he often granted. The cloud thus thrown on the title to all property that had passed through the hands of new Christians at any time subsequent to 1479 continued to hang over it, and the Inquisition grew stricter in the interpretation of its rights. A letter of May 6, 1539, from the Suprema to the Inquisitor of Saragossa, says that he is reported to have decided that when a person is condemned or reconciled with confiscation, and has alienated real property subsequently to the commission of heresy, if the purchaser is required to surrender it to the fisc, he is entitled to reimbursement of the purchase money. The inquisitor is therefore summoned to state his authority for this decision, as law and custom are to the contrary, and it is so practiced. This was peremptory, and it is not likely that the question was raised again, although it took no count of the rule, which Simancas soon afterwards tells us was still in vigor, that if the purchase money, or what represents it, is found in the confiscated estate, restitution should be made to the purchaser. The Spanish Inquisition preferred to both keep the money and take the property. 
Ferdinand and Isabella manifested liberality in setting free the Christian slaves of confiscated estates, and this was extended by the instructions of 1484 at the cost of those reconciled under edicts of grace, for though they were not subject to confiscation, their Christian slaves were manumitted. It was, perhaps, a kindly care that kept these freedmen in a species of serfdom, for instructions about 1500 direct the inquisitors to place them with proper persons under agreements as to wages, and if they are not reasonably treated, to transfer them to other masters. Embarrassing cases sometimes arose, such as that in which a slave was owned jointly by a good Catholic and a condemned heretic, but it would seem from a decision in 1531 that the manumitted half carried with it into freedom the enslaved half, and the Catholic owner had no redress. The inquisitors did not always respond to the humane intentions of the instructions. They seemed to have sometimes kept slaves for themselves, in place of setting them free, for which in 1516 they were rebuked, and were also ordered that, during the trials of the owners, the slaves should be hired out and their wages be strictly accounted for, all of which points to current abuses. These did not cease, for in 1525 Dr. Mercader, in a visitation of Sicily, found similar ones flourishing. While thus considerate of the slaves of culprits, confiscation seems sometimes to have extended to the persons of the culprits themselves. One of the few letters concerning the Inquisition, in which Isabella joins with Ferdinand, is of December 28, 1498, addressed to the Count of Cifuentes, governor of Seville, ordering him, for the service of God and good execution of justice, to take all the Jews condemned for heresy, now held as prisoners by the abbot of San Pedro, and sell them as slaves at such prices as he deems fit, the proceeds to be handed over to the receiver, and be applied to the debts and necessities of the tribunal. An intimation of a similar kind is made, November 6, 1500, respecting Maestre Luis Carpano of Antequera and his wife, who are described as confiscated to the royal fisc with all their property, real and personal. End of Book 5, Chapter 1, Part 2 Recording by Guero